Section 34 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 108. Paris, Monday, February the 21st, 1689. It is certain that we are separated from each other by a grievous distance. This is enough to make us shudder, but what would it have been if I had added to it the road from hence to the rocks or Rennes? This, however, will not take place so soon. Madame de Chan wishes to see the termination of several affairs, and I am only afraid that she will set out too late, considering my intention of returning next winter, which I must do for several reasons, the first of which is that I am convinced Monsieur de Grignon will be obliged to return on account of his knighthood, and you cannot take a better opportunity to escape from your falling, uninhabitable castle, and come and pay your court a little with the knight of the order. There will not be a knight till that time. I paid mine the other day at Saint-Cyr, much more agreeably than I expected. We, that is Madame de Coulanges, Madame de Bagnol, the Abbé Tietou and I, went on Saturday. We found our places kept. An officer told Madame de Coulanges that Madame de Maintenon had ordered a place for her, next herself. You see what honour is paid her? You, madame, said he, may choose. I placed myself with Madame de Boignol in the second row behind the duchesses. Marshal de Belfon came and placed himself by choice at my right hand, and before us were the duchesses d'Auvergne, de Coislin, and de Sidi. The marshal and I listened to the tragedy with an attention that was remarked and bestowed some praises in a low voice that were very well placed. I cannot tell you the extreme beauty of this piece. It is a performance not easy to represent, and is inimitable. It is the union of music, poetry, singing, and character, so perfect and complete, that there is nothing we wish to alter. The young ladies who represent kings and great personages seem to be made on purpose. It commands attention, and the only unpleasant circumstance attending it is that so fine a production should at last end. Everything in it is simple and innocent, sublime and affecting. The sacred history is so faithfully adhered to as to create respect. All the airs corresponding with the words which are taken from the Psalms or Ecclesiastes and interwoven with the subject are singularly beautiful. The taste and attention of the audience are the criterions of the merit of the piece. I was delighted with it, and so was the marshal who left his place to inform the king how much he was gratified that he was seated next to a lady who was very worthy of seeing Esther. The king approached our seat, and, having turned round, addressed himself to me. I am told, madam, said he, that the peace has given you satisfaction. I replied with perfect self-possession, Sire, I am delighted. What I feel is beyond the power of words to describe. The king continued, Racine has great talents. 
I replied, Sire, he has indeed, and so have these young people. They enter into the subject as if it had been their sole employment. Ah, that is very true, he rejoined. And then he retired, leaving me the object of universal envy. As I was almost the only news spectator, the king took pleasure in observing my genuine admiration, which was without noise or parade. Footnote. By mentioning the circumstance to which she believed she was indebted for this little favour of the king, she proved sufficiently that she was not so much elated with it as been pretended. Back to main text. The prince and princess came and spoke a word to me. Madame de Maintenon flashed upon me like lightning, and then retired to the king. I answered everyone, being in one of my happiest moods. We returned at night with flambeau. I supped up Madame de Coulanges, to whom the king had also spoken, with an air of affability that made him appear fascinating. I saw the Chevalier at night. I related to him, very naturally, my little good fortune, being unwilling to conceal it without reason, as some people do. He was pleased, and here I conclude upon this head. I'm sure he did not afterward find in me any ridiculous vanity or the transports of a vulgar country bumpkin. Ask him. Monsieur de Maux talked me a good deal about you, and so did the prince. I pitied you for not being present, but how was it possible? One cannot be everywhere. You were at the opera at Marseille. As Actis is not only too happy, but too charming, it is impossible you could have been tired with it. Paulina must have been surprised at such a spectacle. She has no right to wish for a more perfect one. I have so pleasing an idea of Marseille that I'm persuaded you are amused there. I will back the dissipations of that place against those of X. But on that very Saturday, after the representation of Easter, the king was informed of the death of the young Queen of Spain. It was carried off in two days by a violent vomiting. Footnote. Maria Louise Revolion, daughter of Monsieur and of Henrietta Anne of England, his first wife. Madame de La Fayette says in her memoirs that the Queen of Spain was poisoned by a cup of chocolate. Donjo affirms that it was by an eel pie. Madame, in her Lettre originate, maintains that the poison was communicated by raw oysters. Voltaire has denied this poisoning, as well as several others. It was a system of the historian, but he only confutes Donjo's account, who said that three of the Queen's women had died in consequence of eating the same dish. Against this detail, he brings forward respectable authority. Madame de Lafayette, who in the life of Madame Henrietta of England, had dared not confirm the opinion of her having died by poison, joined with Voltaire in that of the Queen of Spain, daughter of this princess. The evidence of Madame de Barriere would be stronger if she were not so partial and did not show herself so ready to give credit to every crime. What she adds, that it was two of the Queen's French waiting women who poisoned her, is very improbable. 
She says, however, that it was the Earl of Mansfield who procured the poison, a circumstance which agrees with the common report of that period. In fact, all the letters and memoirs of contemporary writers agree in saying that the Council of Spain, devoted to the Emperor and the Prince of Orange, and resolved to enter into the League against France, wished to remove a queen who was too good a Frenchwoman, and who, governing her husband, was too great an obstacle to the projects of war that had been formed. It is true that such a report, at the moment of the breaking out of hostilities, cannot pass for an historical proof, but it must be owned that it very nearly resembles truth. Back to main text. The king was informed of the death of the young queen of Spain, who was carried off in two days by a violent vomiting. The king informed Monsieur of it the next day, which was yesterday. Great was the grief upon the occasion. Madame wept bitterly, and the king retired in a flood of tears. It is said there is good news from England. Not only the Prince of Orange is not elected king or protector, but he is given to understand that he and his troops have nothing to do but to return. This shortens our solicitude. If this news should gain ground, our Brittany will be in less agitation, and my son will not have the mortification of commanding the nobility of the Viscounty of Rennes and of the Barony of Vitre. They have chosen him against his will to be at their head. Anyone else would be greatly elated with this honour, but he is vexed at it, not liking under any title whatever to take the field in that way. Letter 109, Paris, Ash Wednesday, February the 23rd, 1689. My dear child, the life you lead at Marseille delights me. I love that city, which resembles no other in the world. Ah, how well I understand Paulina's admiration. How natural, how just, how novel all her surprise must be. How pretty I think her. How pleasing to me is the mind which my fancy gives her. It seems to me that I love her and that you do not love her enough. You want her to be all perfection. Did she engage for this when she left her convent? You are not just. Who is there without faults? Do you in conscience expect her to be free from them? Whence can this hope arise? It is not in nature. You wish her then to be a prodigious prodigy, such as was never before seen. If I were with you, I think I should do her some good offices, merely by correcting your imagination a little, and by asking you if a young girl who thinks of nothing but pleasing you and improving herself, who loves and fears you, and who has a great share of understanding, is not in the first rank of excellence. These are the dictates of my heart in favour of my dear Paulina, whom I love and whom I entreat you immediately to embrace for my sake. Add to this her good conscience, which makes her renounce the compact when she sees the jugglers perform their necromancies. This life, though agreeable, must have fatigued you. It is too much for you, my dear child. You go to bed late and you rise early. I've had apprehensions for your health. 
The reason I do not talk to you of mine is that it is as I wish yours to be, and that I have nothing to say upon the subject. Letter 110, Paris, Monday, February the 28th, 1689. The Chevalier went yesterday to Versailles to know his fate. For not finding himself in the lists that have appeared, he is anxious to know whether he is reserved for the Dauphin's army, which has not yet been mentioned. As he has said that he was capable of serving, he has a right to think that he has not been forgotten. At all events, it will not be his fault. He is one of the best. It is certain that the King of England set out this morning for Ireland, where he is expected with impatience. He will be better there than here. He will traverse Brittany with the swiftness of lightning and go straight to Brest, where he will find Marshal d'Estrée and ships and frigates ready. He takes with him 50,000 crowns. The king has given him sufficient arms for 10,000 men. As his Britannic Majesty took leave, he said with a smile that arms for myself were the only things that had been forgotten. Our king gave him his. The heroes of romance never did anything more gallant than this action. What will not this brave but unhappy king do, with arms that have ever been victorious. Behold him then with the cask and cuirass of Rinaldo and Amadis, and all our most celebrated knights-errant. I will not say of Hector, for he was unfortunate. This is not an offer that can be suggested, that our king has not made him, generosity and magnanimity have been carried to their height. Monsieur Dobo is to go with him. He set out two days ago. Footnote John Anthony de Men, Count Dobo, nephew of Claudius de Men, also Count Dobo, both celebrated for their superior talents in negotiation and for uncommon qualities of heart and mind. Back to main text. You ask why Monsieur de Barillon was not the person. Footnote, Monsieur de Barillon had been ambassador to England, back to main text. The reason is that Monsieur Laveau, being perfectly acquainted with the affairs of Holland, will be more useful than he who is acquainted only with those of England. Footnote, the reason assigned here for the preference that was given to Monsieur Laveau is not the true one. Laveau had the merit of having foreseen and announced every event that happened, whereas de Barillon had the misfortune to be wrong in everything. This was the real cause of the preference, back to main text. The Queen has shut herself up at Poissy with her son. She will be near the King and the fountainhead of intelligence. She is overwhelmed with grief and suffers from a nephritic complaint that makes it feared she has the stone. She is really to be pitied. You see, my dear child, it is the rage of talking that makes me write all this. The Chevalier and the Gazette will give you better information than I can do. Your son has lived with me. I never leave him, and he is satisfied. He is going to take leave of the little Mlle Castelnau, but his heart has yet no attractions.
his duty and his regimen take up all his time. He is delighted at the thoughts of going and of setting the example to others. Letter 111, Paris, Wednesday, March the 2nd, 1689. Shrove Tuesday is not an indifferent day to Paulina. I cannot help scolding you, my dear child, for not having sent her prettily to the good Langlaise to dance a little with Mademoiselle Dorisson. What harm would there have been in a allowing her this little pastime? I'm sure this dear child is interesting, but that she has a good air, a good carriage, and even eclipses more regular beauties. I scold you also for reading all your letters before you go to bed. I know it is scarcely possible to keep them till the next day, but you must calculate upon not sleeping, for there will often be many things in them that will create disagreeable thoughts. Nor would it be a whit better if they contained nothing but reflections and news. Before the imagination has sifted the contents, the night is gone. As you know all this to be true, settle the matter for the benefit of your health. I took my marquis yesterday to Madame de Puy de Fous. She grows very old. Monsieur de Mirepoix, who's been there once before to see me, came a second time, and each time his whole conversation turned upon his condescension in marrying to please his family. The little puppet is dying of the spleen in this dreary abode. I afterward went to Madame de Lavadance, to whom I remembered you. She embraced your son several times. She loves you dearly, and so does Madame de Moussy. But this last is in the third heaven. She has lost a sister who was a nun for whom she had very little regard. I shall make your compliments to her and her learned brother. Footnote. Achille de Halle, then Attorney General, and afterward first president in the Parliament of Paris in November 1689. Back to main text. The Chevalier arrived last night and is very well. He will be employed, but he knows not yet in what country. I admire his courage. Your son is a very agreeable and a very pretty fellow. He already manages all his affairs, gives orders, makes purchases and keeps his accounts. It is a pity his father had not done the same. The Chevalier will inform you what our king said to the King of England at his taking leave. Sir, it is with grief I see you depart, yet... I never wish to see you again. But if you return, be assured, you will find me the same as you leave me. Could anything better have been said? He has loaded him with everything, great and small. Two millions of money, ships, frigates, troops, officers, and Monsieur Rabot, who makes upon the occasion one of the most brilliant figures in the world. I will venture to say that there is no one who would not be proud of the employment, who would not think it worthy a man thoroughly acquainted with business and capable of giving advice. 
If Monsieur de Barillon is not sensible of this, he is very happy. I now come to the minutiae, such as toilets, camp beds, surfaces of plate, plain and gilt, arms for his person, which are the king's, arms for the troops in Ireland and those who go with him, who were very numerous. In short, generosity, magnificence and magnanimity were never so strikingly displayed as upon this occasion. The king is not willing that the queen should go to Poissy. She will see very little company, but the king will take care of her and she will receive news without intermission. The parting of the king and queen of England rent the hearts of all the spectators. Nothing but tears, sighs, lamentations and swoonings were to be seen or heard, which is very easy to be comprehended. Such is his destiny. He has a good cause. He is the protector of the true religion, and his courage will allow him no other alternative than conquest or death. End of section 34